everything will be great. I wanted to grow. And like big kids in the playground, I thought if I could just grow, everything will be great. I wanted to grow. And like you, I kids in the playground, I thought if I could just grow, everything will be great. I wanted to grow. And like you, I would just inch along in my growth. But in time, as I got older, my interest in growth wasn't just about my stature. It wasn't just about how tall I was or anything like that. My, my desire to grow began to change. And I wanted to grow in terms of experience. I wanted to experience things. I wanted to know what it was like to drive a car and get a license. And, and my interest in growth began to change a little. I, I wanted my experiences to grow. I wanted my understanding to grow. And then you get a little bit older, maybe in your, in your later high school years or your college years. And, and you continue to want to grow, but again, in different ways. You want to grow in, in knowledge. You want to have a broad base of knowledge from which you can launch into your future. I wanted to grow in credibility in a sense. I wanted to get enough wins in my life that somehow it would warrant a, a good opportunity for life. And, and so you go through life just wanting to grow. And I want to share today that I believe there should be in all of us a desire to grow for a lifetime, for a complete lifetime. And the thought of going someplace where we are not now, of growing in one way or another, at one rate or another, it should be encouraging to us. Life is always interesting. There's always more to learn, and, and growth is something that can come to all of our lives. Now, sometimes growth brings challenges. We all understand how that goes. In fact, we are all familiar with growing pains, and that would be true in every area of life. But growth in life is always worth it. Now today we're entering into part three of our study that we've called Enjoy, a verse-by-verse -verse study through this great book of the New Testament, the book we call Philippians. And we come today to, to chapter three, and we've come to understand in our study what joy is, and, and we've seen that God does a work in our lives. In chapter two, we studied how wonderful it is to know Jesus and to know what salvation is all about. And we come today to chapter 3, and, and in this third chapter, we find Paul, the human author, really sharing some interesting insights on his life. In fact, I want you to understand this. In chapter 3 in the book of Philippians, Paul talks about his entire life. And as we break this chapter down, as we get involved in the first part of chapter 3, Paul's going to tell us about his past life. His life, we could say, before he came to know Jesus. And then he's going to take a period of time to deal with the immediate situation in his life and how he's handling his present. And then when we get to the end of chapter 3, we're going to hear Paul as he's talking about his future, looking down the road, even looking so far as to thinking about heaven and, and eternity with God. And so Philippians chapter 3 is, is a great chapter. It's an important chapter. And it's one where Paul deals with every aspect of life. Now, uh, I've got to be honest with you. I've got about a two, two and a half hour sermon for you this morning, okay? But uh, because I love you, I will not give it all to you at once. But what I will do is we'll invest some time to uh, kind of get this thing started. Uh, but if I won't give you the whole sermon, you guys have to promise to come back to hear the next couple so it will all make sense. As I often say when we begin a new phase in our study, a new chapter, you've got to take some time to get uh, identified with some of the terms and you've got to let the foundation be established. And I'm going to do my best today to, to do that. It's going to be a little bit more of a teaching type of a message. But I think I read in the Bible somewhere where we're supposed to get together and teachings to be a part of it so we'll do our best to fulfill God's will in that way and uh, I'm looking forward to getting involved in a study of Philippians chapter 3 this may be uh, the most powerful chapter in scripture that God has used in my life now all of the Bible is the word of God but this chapter very well may be 
uh, the chapter that was kind of the fulcrum to leverage my life in a whole new direction for God. And I'm excited to share all of it with you, and I know I can't do that all in one sermon, but uh, we're going to get started on that today. So if you're able, I'd like to invite you to, to join me in standing, please. Philippians chapter 3. If we want to grow, there are some things that we just need to know, and Paul will begin to share that with us in Philippians chapter 3. The first word in this uh, passage is this, finally. Now, this is how I know the Apostle Paul was a Baptist, okay? He, here he is right exactly in the middle of his sermon. Two chapters behind him, two chapters in front of him, and he used the word finally. He was tricking his audience into paying attention a little longer, but, but uh, uh, we, we'll see there was even importance in that word. But he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And we'll explain that, but what Paul is saying there basically is this. Hey, I'm going to tell you some things I already told you, but it's not a bummer for me because as a teacher, I know that repetition is the mother of learning. And so it's not grievous, it's not disappointing to me. As a teacher, I'm happy to be repetitive in some ways. And then he said, furthermore, my repetition, it's good for you. It brings safety to you. Verse 2. Beware of dogs. Can I get a witness this morning? I mean, is God's word powerfully practical or what? If you get nothing out of church today, get this. Beware of dogs, okay? How many of you think there's probably more meaning to that expression than we might lend credence to initially? There is, and we're going to get to that. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, I'm going to read on, but if you were paying any attention as we read through that verse, it's filled with interesting, curious, maybe strange, even bizarre statements. One danger we make as we read the Bible is we'll just come to something we don't understand, and we'll either conclude the Bible is incomprehensible, or we'll say there may be something there, but I'll never know, and we just move right beyond it. Uh, I have found that just about every time I find something in the Bible that doesn't make sense to my way of thinking or to our culture, that when I come to study it, there's a great truth in there. And so when we find some unusual expressions like we do in this text, I want you to know we're, we're really in store to kind of go back to this first century mindset and, and, and hear it the way they would have heard it. So there's some great truths there. Verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Paul basically in the end of verse 3 and verse 4 says this, Look, don't trust yourself. Don't trust in your flesh. And he said, if anybody wanted to do that, I could because my flesh is better than your flesh. Now, it kind of sounds like Paul was being an arrogant jerk. He wasn't. What he said was accurate, and he's going to go on to prove it. Paul was quite a guy in the flesh. He knew a lot. His training was second to none. He was brilliant, natural leader. And he's saying, look, don't trust in your flesh. And if you want to get in a contest of whose flesh is better, I'll play that game with you every time because I think I'll win. All right, now we're going to develop this. This is interesting. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews is touching the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now there is no good place in chapter 3 to stop reading but we've got to stop somewhere. So we're going to stop in verse 6. And I want you, if you would, to go back to the beginning of verse 1. There's a statement that really is in keeping with the emphasis of these verses as well as the emphasis of this book. In the beginning of verse uh, uh, 3, it says, Finally, my brethren, but here's a statement, Rejoice in the Lord. 
rejoice in the Lord. I want us to think on that together. Our Father, thank you for this day, the opportunity to learn and grow, and I pray that you would look into this service today and find all of us doing our very best to learn and grow, be honored through it, be glorified through it. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. He desperately wanted to be with them. He just couldn't. There's nothing he could do about it. He was living under what we might call house arrest, an imprisoned situation in Rome, and, and he wanted to be with the believers in Philippi that he loved, and as we've seen in our study, he just couldn't come. There was no getting away from the guard to which he was chained, to getting away from the, the confinement that, that his life had been limited to. And so the best he could do in that situation was write a letter to those that he loved. But as we get to the end of the book of Philippians, we're going to find that Paul himself did not physically write the letter. He had to dictate the letter to his friend Epaphroditus and ask him, hey, would you take this letter back to the people that I would be with in person if I could? We wonder, why didn't you write the letter yourself, Paul? Well, maybe being chained to a guard would make it difficult to write a letter. We also know that Paul had some terrible eye troubles, and it may have been that in that time in his life that it was acting up, and, and writing wasn't an option for him. So thankfully, he had someone to whom he could dictate his words for this church. But, but here we find a man in an imprisoned situation who can't be where he wants to be, decides a letter needs to be written, can't even write it himself, so he's got to dictate it. And, and any way you slice it, it just kind of seems to add pity to an already pitiful situation our heart could go out to Paul in this time he's got every reason to be down every reason to be discouraged but with two chapters behind him and with two chapters ahead of him we find a renewed sense of energy in his words Paul's training was at his attorney and he would often say things to lay the foundation for a major point of emphasis that was yet to come and Paul opens chapter 3 with the word finally, not to trick them into thinking he was almost done, but that would have been an, an idiotism or a colloquialism that they would have understood. It was a way of teaching where Paul, through the word finally, was saying in essence this, listen up, here it comes. I'm making the point now. Don't miss this. This is big time. And so Paul invested chapter 2 sharing some great truths about Christ that we'll, we'll mention in a moment. And he begins in chapter 3 by saying, finally, and he was telling his audience, you need to pay close attention. So in verse 1, he said, finally, my brethren rejoice in the Lord. Now, doesn't that again, doesn't that sound like a strange thing for Paul to say in this situation? I just can't do what I want to do in life. I can't be where I want to be in life. I can't have what I want to have in life. Rejoice. Rejoice. That was his message. Finally, on the basis of these things we've studied in chapter 2, I make my way into chapter 3 by saying, Rejoice in the Lord. The word rejoice means to joy again and again. And, and Paul was emphasizing the importance in Christian life of growing in joy. Of growing in joy. At the end of Philippians, we're going to find in chapter 4 that Paul says this. He said, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Now, let me have your attention for a moment. I, I want us to get this by way of, a, of an introduction. I don't think we in English, it's redundant in English, but I don't think we in English can even understand how redundant that statement was. Rejoice means to joy again and again, to have joy again and again and again. To live in joy. So Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. So he said, have joy again and again and again and again and again. Always. Always. Keep having joy. And then he said, and again, I say rejoice. 
have joy again and again and again and over and over and over. Paul was being redundant. He was being emphatic, almost ridiculous in saying that the, the, the life of a Christian should be a life that is profoundly filled with joy. That's what he is saying. Because of Jesus, we always have a reason to have joy. We always have a reason to be thankful, to praise. Paul, who wrote Philippians, wrote in another part of the Bible, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, some words we need to consider. He said this, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. From time to time, people say, Pastor, I just want to know God's will for my life. And today, let me share with you God's will for your life. It's that in everything we'd give thanks, because this is the will of God. Now, I want you to notice it doesn't say give thanks for everything. Not everything's thankworthy. But if you're a person of faith and you're going through a situation with the Lord, He's your Savior, He's with you, you're in a situation, in everything, give thanks. You, you, you have the Lord with you in everything, we can praise God. In everything we go through, we can, we can celebrate who He is and what that means. That is a fact. There's no getting around it. Jesus Christ is God the Son. And Jesus Christ is immutably, unchangeably, everlastingly good. That is the reality of teaching. You can deny that if you will, but you cannot deny that is what the Word of God teaches. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is good. But as we think of that, it begs some questions. It, it will bring some questions to our mind. I, I think it's a fair question to wonder, how can we have joy again and again and again in, in every situation? There's some tough times in life. I think it's fair to wonder, how can we have a heart that praises God even when things in my life seem to be falling apart? When there seems to be chaos around me, when there's hurt around me, maybe we've, we've made a horrible decision that has hurt others and we're grieved in our spirit or maybe others have betrayed us, have hurt us and we're left wounded and we can wonder, how in the world am I supposed to go through life having joy again and again and again always and then again have it again and again and again? How am I supposed to live that way when life can be profoundly, incredibly difficult at times? And so Paul says, I'm so glad you asked that hypothetical rhetorical question and he gives us the answers here in the word of god and if you have your notes nearby get them out we've got to get a hold of this how can we literally live the lives of praise and joy and thankfulness well in your outlines you'll see the first reason we can do this because of the joy of salvation the joy of salvation now this this may have sounded repetitive because Paul had already talked about salvation in this letter. He'd already talked about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, what salvation is all about. And, and so Paul, is, as, as he writes here, he, he, he says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. But then Paul says this. He said, to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but to you it is safe. He's saying, hey, these same things uh, that I'm writing, I, I know I've already talked about it, I've already mentioned it, I've already referenced it, I'm mentioning it again, not because I have nothing else to say, but because this is so very important, I'm going to say these things to you because it's going to bring a measure of safety into your life, as he was expressing this, he was teaching them that the knowledge of spiritual salvation a relationship with God that will last forever. When you understand what that's all about, it adds a layer of safety. It safeguards your joy. Now, we all need this reminder from time to time, don't we? 
If you're anything like me, I can forget just about anything. And I can forget things that are true. It doesn't make them untrue. It just means I've forgotten to enjoy the blessing that that brings to my life. Uh, maybe you, like me, have forgotten some things in your life that were true, they were valid, they were real, they were helpful, they were tangible. That didn't mean those things ceased to exist. You just ceased to enjoy them. I think of King David in Psalm 51 and verse 12. He said this, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. What did he say? He said, man, when I was living, enjoying salvation, there was joy that came along with it. And and God, I've drifted. You have not. Your salvation has not changed. But the joy that has come from understanding what that means in my life has, has drifted. And so, God, would you do a work of restoration in my life? When we are reminded of what salvation is all about, we're going to find a renewal of joy in our lives. For example, there was a man in the Old Testament by the name of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. It's not a common name, all right? Most of us wouldn't name our children Habakkuk, but Habakkuk was a great man of God. And, and, and in his little book in the Old Testament, he tells a story. I, in fact, I think I'll be teaching through the book of Habakkuk in, in the near future. He, he goes through this time and things in his life weren't going good. And so he's writing this letter in his little book in the Old Testament. And man, the flowers, they're not blossoming and blooming and and uh, he, he's going on to talk about the fact that the, uh, the trees weren't producing fruit and the vines weren't producing grapes. And, and he said this, he said, there's no herd in the stalls. Everything's going wrong. These are all things of incredible importance when you live a subsistence life. All right. So, man, there's no food in the fridge. There's no food in the cupboards. There's no money in the bank. He's really laying it out there. And then near the end of his letter in Habakkuk chapter three, he says this. I mean, after all these negative statements, he says, you know, but I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will joy, catch this, in the God of my salvation. Here's what he was saying. He said, you know, I'm going through a time in life where I can't catch a break. It seems like everything's going wrong. There's maybe no good reason, physically speaking, tangibly speaking, why it is that I should have joy in in my life. But in spite of all that's happening in my life, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because because he's my savior. He's my salvation. Therefore, I'm going to go through this time with a joyful mindset. Listen, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I want you to know that these words can offer great comfort and encouragement to your life. It can be a reminder to us of the joy of salvation. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure that you're a Christian. I am so thankful you're here and I hope you'll listen. Maybe what we'll cover today will will somehow touch your heart and and you'll think of how wonderful Jesus is and how great it is to to know that you have salvation, the forgiveness of of the sins in our lives and and saved to a relationship with God that lasts forever. And so Paul says, I'm going to go over some of these things because we all need reminders and it doesn't bother me and it's really, really good for you and and then as he continues on the next words we we find as we get into verse two say this beware of dogs now again that's kind of a weird thing to just toss in there you know beware of dogs that's what he says Uh, that was a meaningful statement he went on to say this beware of evil workers beware of the concision now this was quite quite a statement that paul made here that was filled with with things that the people in philippi would have readily understood and to understand this, we need to know who are the dogs. He, he wasn't talking about canines. He, he was referring to something specific when he said dogs. 
We need to understand that. When the message of salvation was first, was first given, there was an order, a sequence uh, that was followed. Paul also wrote the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 1, he gives us some understanding of what all took place. He said this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. By the way, isn't that a blessing? Paul said, I want you to know I'm not embarrassed about Jesus. I'm not embarrassed to pray in a restaurant. I'm not embarrassed to tell people I go to church. I'm not embarrassed to tell people I'm a Christian. I'm not embarrassed to take a stand on social issues when the majority would be opposed to my view. He said, I'm not embarrassed of Jesus. I'm not afraid to take a stand for him. Would to God we had more Christians like that. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, why, Paul? Well, because he'd say, it's the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I love the way the, the Apostle Paul says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation. You say, Pastor, you know, I'm not super eloquent. doesn't matter. If you share the gospel, the power's in the gospel. It doesn't matter how well I speak, per se. It, it doesn't matter how winsome I am in my delivery. It doesn't matter how well my pul pulpit presence is, to use a personal analogy. The power is in the message being from the Word of God. And Paul said, listen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's a powerful message. It saves people. And he said it saves everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, the Jewish people, the whole Old Testament's a history of, of the Jewish people, God's people. And... And as we come to the New Testament and they come to understand who Jesus is and, and some start begin to uh, get saved, it's still primarily a Jewish thing. And, and from there, it was with the Jews first and, and then it went to the Greek. It, it was speaking there of, of the, of the non-Jewish people. That was the way things spread. In Acts chapter 10, we find that one of the disciples, a man by the name of Peter, he follows the leading of God to take the gospel to the Gentile or the non-Jewish world. And, and that was really the first time there was that emphasis in that way. And then we find the apostle Paul. He was a man who was a missionary to the, to the Gentile world. He gave his life to take the gospel to, to the Jew first, but then he, he emphasized his ministry to the Gentile word, world. And some of the Jews at that time were unhappy with the thought of these outsiders coming in. And how human-like, isn't that? In fact, their prejudice got so intense that some of them concluded this. You know, if they want to come in our church, they're going to have to do it our way. They're going to have to go through the process of becoming Jewish. And then they have to come to the place where they accept Christ. And, and what they were doing in all of this is they were adding works to something that God had already said was for free. He said, you're not saved by works of righteousness, which you, which you have done, but by his mercy, he, he has saved us. And the Bible tells us that, that salvation comes really when we understand what Jesus has done for us, not based on what it is that we do for him. It's not by gaining merit or favor or good standing with God. It's by accepting by faith what Jesus Christ has done for us. And Paul called those that added works to salvation the dogs that we are to be aware of. Those that added to salvation were to be aware of that and it's interesting you think well why did Paul say dogs it doesn't sound very nice well what's interesting is these were the kind of people who would have looked at Gentiles and called them dogs and not in a kind way either in a derogatory way it's kind of like we're better than you are those dogs and they'd refer to them as dogs and Paul said let me tell you who the dogs are here it's the one calling everybody else dogs you need to beware of dogs and he's emphasizing those that add works to salvation stick with me this will come together I believe and then he says watch for the evil workers again these were they adding to God's message of salvation 
And, and then he called them the concision. The concision. Now, if this were junior church, I would skip over this part. This is not junior church. This is senior church. Okay, all right, we made our way up. We've, we've graduated to the big time here. Concision. I remember reading that, thinking, what in the world? And, but I wasn't interested enough to like look it up or anything. Concision means this, to mark or mutilate your flesh. And concision was something that was a word that referred to the practices of heathens and pagans. And, and that was just something that people that really didn't have a worldview that included a concept of God did. They'd mark their bodies, they'd cut their bodies, they'd stick things through, you know. I mean, you've all seen National Geographic in the picture, and, and, and that's primarily from societies where there's just not a great concept of, of a loving God. And so they disrespect and degrade the body, which we understand as people of faith, it's to be the temple of God. And so they do all kinds of things to mess it up. Concision. To mark or mutilate the body. Now, why did Paul use that word? You see, there was kind of one thing that stood above all the rest when it came to being Jewish. It was this process called circumcision. And Paul said, look, I know there's a picture in that, and we'll talk about that even in a moment. But, but he said, I want you to know what you are. You're making other people go through this process, and, and, and you're just making them jump needlessly through hoops. And, and, and he, was, he was referring to this ritual of, of circumcision so these people would become Jewish. And Paul said, listen, that's not how it's to work at all. Paul said, be careful of false teachers who want to tell you what you have to do to gain a standing with God, to become saved or to remain saved. Be careful of those that would add a burden of works. We don't have to do or become anything to be saved of our sins. We have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be saved. He's the one that does all that needs to be done. And this truth excites me because I can rejoice in any situation because my salvation is not dependent on anything except the payment of Jesus Christ. He took care of everything. We're all going to go through difficult situations, but if we know that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, He's with us in it. A few Sunday nights ago, I invested an evening to share with our church what our theme for the year was and how I thought that would apply to, to the year we're getting ready to start at that time. And I talked about our, our annual theme, which is For the Faith. That comes from Philippians chapter 1, where we're studying in, in verse 27. And, and the Bible there mentions for the faith. And, and we took some time to develop that and elaborate on that. And, and I talked about the fact that, that many people through the centuries have, have lived for the faith. And some had died for the faith. And, and I shared a story of some people that I was introduced to while Lisa and I were traveling through London on our way home from uh, our recent conference we were at in Romania. And, and I, I heard a story, and I'm not an expert on on history, forgive me for that. I wish I knew more, but I'm learning all the time. And, and I was reminded that England at one time was a completely uh, Catholic nation. And there was a king, Henry VIII, I believe, who decided he wanted a divorce from his wife. He, he wanted the pope to give him the ability to get a divorce. And the pope said, nothing doing, I'm not going to let you do that. And so Henry VIII said, well, then nothing doing, I don't want anything to do with you. He started his own religion and called it Anglicanism. It looks like Roman Catholicism in many ways in practice. And, and they have the Archbishop of Canterbury instead of the pope. But really, look at him, they're very... 
very similar, and, and so that breach was made. Now, in time, there were aspects from Anglicanism where there were those that truly came to know Jesus Christ, and there was a strong growth of Protestantism, we would say, and, and there were those even in our lineage, in our, in our spiritual ancestry, that came to know Jesus Christ during that time. Well, time marched on, and so there's an Anglican king who ended up, for political expediency, marrying a queen by the name of Mary. She was Catholic. And so we've now got an Anglican and a Catholic. And, and that would have made things interesting. Interesting dinner conversation, but the Anglican king died leaving Queen Mary on the throne. Well, her allegiance was to Catholicism, and so she decided we're turning this thing back around. We're going back that way. And naturally, there were those that didn't want to do that, and there were many others who, who had come to the point where they believed, frankly, salvation is through faith in Jesus alone. It's not through works. It's not through membership in one church or another. It's through a personal relationship with God. Well, that, that wasn't good enough. And so Mary began to persecute people of faith, killing many. In fact, history gives Mary the moniker Bloody Mary because of all of the people she killed during this time in world history. And the source of the angst for so many of them was their faith in Christ alone. I stood at a place where several men on one day were, were burned at the stake. I learned a story of one, a man by the name of John Bradford. Uh, his freedom would have been granted had he just recanted his belief. But he said, no, I've lived for the faith. I will die for the faith. In fact, the inscription there at the site where he was burned, as I tried my best to take a picture through the bars, it, it talked about the fact he suffered death by fire for the faith, this was a man who said, I will die for that which I believe. He could have recanted. Numerous times the opportunity was given. Look, dude, just let up on this. Is it really worth your life? And he said, you know, there are some things for which I will die. And the faith is one of them. And, and so this man went in the last day of his life. He, he walked out to the place where he would die. He was tied to the stake. And as the lower flames were lit, the, the historical record is that he, as these flames were were lit says to a man beside him who's also preparing to lose his life he said these words be of good comfort brother for we shall have a merry supper with the lord this night so here a man is on what many would classify as the worst day of his life and he said oh no this is the best day of my christian life i'm going to see jesus today he was entering into the most profound pain his body would have ever experienced considering the loss that his family would now have to deal with, all that he'd been through, the injustice of it all. But he was able to have joy even while tied to a stake while the flames were creeping ever closer. He was able to have joy because he understood something. The Lord was there with him. It was the joy of salvation. When you know what salvation is and who gives it and that you can never lose it once you have it, you can have joy in a lifetime. It gives you something to draw from in any situation. It comforts your heart, and Paul was teaching these people that, that a heart that rejoices and praises God is one that understands salvation. But we see a second thought here, don't we? I want us to see here the joy of what I will call sanctification. Sanctification. After we understand what salvation is all about, we then come to a time of growth in, in our lives of faith. And, and the Bible word for growth in the life of a Christian is sanctification. Sanctification. 
Paul, who also wrote Romans, as I said earlier, uh, gives us a verse that helps us to understand what sanctification is all about. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, Paul said this. He said, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, I could read on, and I've already read some words that are worthy of much time. It's not the It's not the focus of my discussion today. Words like foreknow and predestinate are great Bible words. But what I want us to see in this verse is this. Conform to the image of His Son. To look more like Jesus Christ. God works in our lives so that we we begin to look more like Jesus as we yield to God. When we accept Jesus and become a Christian, we are saved at that moment for always and forever from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. And when a person becomes a Christian, they never again are going to answer uh, for their sin. Jesus answered for our sin on the cross of Calvary. And as we live the Christian life, we understand once we're saved, we're saved from the penalty of sin. But there's a sense where we are being saved as Christians, and that's the process of sanctification. We're being saved from the power of sin. Now, we're not going to become sinlessly perfect in this lifetime, but we ought to be looking more and more and more like Jesus along the way. This is the process of sanctification. It means to be separated Unto. And a Christian should all the time be, be separating from things of the world so that we can be getting ever closer to Jesus Christ. There's joy in this process of, of sanctification. And so Paul continues and he goes on to make a statement. He says this, he said, we are the circumcision. Now that's strange to us, but when they heard that word circumcision, they thought of a beautiful symbol that identifies us as a people unique and distinct for God. And Paul said, we, the body of Christ, we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Earlier, we saw that Paul was addressing the people of the day who sought to demand an outward sign for salvation. They were adding works to salvation through that symbol of, of, of Jewish circumcision. The, the symbol was a reminder of, of what we might call original sin. And, and there was a removal and there was a, a, a significance there. You now are, are unique in that you're set apart to God. But Paul said, listen, today in our day, we worship God in spirit. And he said, our entire lives are to be that symbol. Our entire lives have been saved because of God. And we're to live our lives distinct unique, separated unto Him. We are to be living our lives as God would have us to. No works are added to salvation, and furthermore, no effort of our own can lead to spiritual growth. It all must be God that enables us. Now, we've seen earlier in our studies, haven't we, that Paul had great confidence. He was a confident man. But he could praise God in his life because his confidence was not in himself. For he says in this text, have no confidence in the flesh. His confidence came only from God. He knew that God would enable us to grow in life as we yield to him and learn of him. You see, Paul's the kind of guy who who would hear us say things today and would just cringe. People say, hey, just follow your heart. Follow your heart. It just sounds so good. It makes for nice songs. Follow your heart. And Paul would say, I believe were he here, that's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Let me tell you about your heart. It's like mine. It's it's deceitful. It's wicked. It's desperate. Our heart's prone to lead us in the wrong direction. 
And when the Bible says, have no confidence in the flesh, it's speaking to each of us as individuals, telling us, look, don't trust in your own abilities, don't trust in your own resources, your own resourcefulness. Don't go through life as some flesh monster who looks at himself in the mirror and says, we can do it, you and I, looking back at me in the mirror. Paul said, don't be that kind of person. Don't trust in your flesh. Trust, rather, in God. Don't follow your heart. Follow, rather, the heart of God. We would hear people today say, listen, you can do anything. If you can conceive it, you can, can, you can achieve it and, and uh, fake it until you make it. You'll get there one day. And, and the whole mantra of modern day education is flawed at its very core. And it's flawed, I believe, because there is a religion pervasive in our schools today. It's called secular humanism, and it's a religion. And secular humanism 101 is you're a cosmic accident. There is no God, at least if there is, we're never going to mention Him in a public setting. And because you're a cosmic accident, and God has no factor at all on the way we look at things that we learn, your life really has very little purpose. And then from that platform, we begin to say, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And we build people up who have confidence in their flesh. And listen, the most ignorant person among us is the arrogant person among us and within us. People say, hey, man, you can do it. And I think Paul would say, no, you can't. But God can. He has a process whereby he works in our lives. He leads us in our lives. Listen, I, I hope this message is, is, is going against the way some uh, of, the, of the ways that we think. I want this to shake us a bit. I want us to think on this. Here Paul sits locked away from these people he loves, and yet he's rejoicing in God because he has the joy of his salvation and he has the joy of sanctification. And this third thought we're going to consider briefly today is really a synopsis of the first two thoughts. But it's not grievous for me, and it's needful for you that we have a little repetition here. I want us to see third, the joy of realization. Now Paul was saying, look, if anybody wanted to have confidence in their flesh, I could. In fact, he said, I could more than you. And then Paul said, jokingly, he said, if you want to have a game of let's compare resumes, bring your resume out. Let's get the party started. Let, let's do this thing. I'll get my resume, you get your resume, and we'll see at least on paper who's better than the other. If you really want to find your confidence in who you are and where you come from and what you've done and who you know, let's compare right now. And so in verses 5 and 6, Paul begins to go into his, his resume. This is his past now. He says, circumcised the eighth day. That was the custom. When a Jewish baby boy was born on the eighth day, the parents would present the child unto the Lord, and this was, this was a way that you started your life right and he said I got off to a good start I'm of the stock of Israel here's what Paul said again this is a Jewish man writing to Jewish Christians and and he said I'm of the stock of Israel that meant this I can trace my lineage all the way back he said all those invading countries in the history of our nation none of them touched my family I'm pure you can trace my lineage all the way back I'm of the tribe of Benjamin some of you will remember Jacob he had 12 sons. They made up the 12 tribes of Israel. There were two sons he liked more than the others. One was named Joseph. The other was named Benjamin. 
Paul said, I want you to know something. Man, I got off to a great start. I could trace my lineage all the way back, and I want you to know of all the boys from which I could have been born that were born to my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, I'm a Pharisee. And as we've seen, a Pharisee was kind of like a Ph.D. in the law of Moses. And we think of the Old Testament and the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five. The first five books of the Old Testament of which the law of Moses is comprised. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's hard for us even to remember those five words in order. But being a Pharisee meant that Paul had those five books of the Bible absolutely committed to memory. He said, when, when, when we think of the law, you need to know you're dealing with a Pharisee. I know it all. I've memorized it all. I've thought of it all. And then he goes on to say this. He said, you want to talk about zeal? Let me tell you about my zeal. I persecuted the church. Now, who's the church? The church is comprised of believers who've come together to carry out the great commission of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul, before he came to know Jesus as his personal savior, was so zealous that he dedicated his life to killing those who disagreed with him. When the first martyr of the church, a man by the name of Stephen, was killed, it was the Apostle Paul, the Bible tells us, who was, before he was the Apostle Paul, of course, he was standing there, and he's holding the coats of those who were killing Stephen, and he's just loving it. He's reveling in it. He traveled around in a fit of rage, and the Bible says he'd haul people off to prison, men and, and women, and, and he hated the church of Jesus Christ. He said, if you want to talk about zeal, I could talk about zeal a long time. He said, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, we would say, how could Paul say he's blameless for what he had done? And Paul would say, well, I'm, I'm justified at least in my own way of thinking. He was at that time. I'm doing what I know. I'm following the Old Testament Mosaic laws. But the day came when Paul realized something. Paul realized something. He realized that as proud as he was of his heritage and as proud as he was of his accomplishments, he realized that he was not big enough or strong enough or smart enough to somehow earn his way into a right standing or a relationship with God. He couldn't do it. He could not do enough. Paul is basically saying to these people, Hey, I'm better than you, and I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you, I can prove it on paper. And he said, I, and I fall short. Don't have confidence in your flesh. You see, he was saying it's, it's not about keeping some rules. It's not about earning up a credit with God. It's, it's about accepting through faith that when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, that his blood paid the price in full. Paul was saying, it's not about a religion. I'm not fond of religion. Paul was saying it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with God. He was saying it's not about a denomination. It's about a decision to accept Jesus Christ. Well, somebody could say, well, wait a minute. This is a Baptist church, and I know that name has been denominationalized, but that word is really just an adjective that refers to a body of beliefs. It's just a term that refers to New Testament theology. If we were to think of what it means, there, there's a list of things that that word stands for. It means Bible is the sole authority in all matters in faith and practice. Basically, that means when it comes to the church, you follow the word of God. How many of you would agree with that? 
You're a Baptist, you didn't know it yet, huh? And it means autonomy of the local church, autonomy, self-governing. It means that local churches are to be self-governing. We don't have a hierarchical system. We're a self-governing body. It means priesthood of the believer. In other words, that means that I don't have to get in a little room and tell another guy who's got his own problems what my problems are. It means I can get on my knees and I'm immediately in the presence of God. And when I pray in Jesus' name, my prayers by way of God the Spirit are delivered into the throne room of God the Father. That's the priesthood of the believer. It means there are two church ordinances, baptism. In baptism, we see the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second ordinance is the Lord's Supper. We think of the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. It means individual soul liberty, and that means that the Holy Spirit of God can speak to you as much as He can speak to me or anybody else. There's no levels. There's no clergy and laity. The, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It means separation, both personal and ecclesiastical. That means that we're to live a distinct life unto God, separating from worldliness and, and carnality and sin. We're to do that as individuals. We're to do that as a church family, understanding that the, this church is to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And it means there are two church officers, pastors and deacons. That, that's all the, that, that, that means. That just means that, that that's the body of doctrine that, that guides our philosophy here, our polity here. But it's not about a denomination. It's about a decision to trust Jesus and him alone. And, and Paul came to this conclusion himself. And it changed everything for Paul. It changed everything. Now look here, please. I shouldn't say look here. That sounds rude, but you know what I mean. Finally, how's that? Paul went from a man on a mission... And his original mission was to prove something to God. Prove something probably to himself. And prove something to other people that he was really something. That was his mission. He had something to prove. Well, I've got to go to church. If I don't, I'll feel bad. And I'll feel bad because God feels bad at me. Therefore, I've got to go or God won't be happy. That's a, that's a very poor motivation in life. I've got to do what I do just so I can keep God on my, on my good side. You know, he'll let the air out of my tires if I don't give him this offering today. I'm just sure of it. And, and, and it's motivated by an ill-conceived concept of who God is and what he has done. And rather than seeing him as a, as a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who forgives, we see him as an angry, bitter, resentful God who's just hoping we'll step out of line so he can get us. And so Paul is feverishly working so that somehow he can lend credence to his flesh. Look what I've achieved. But if we could work our way to heaven, imagine we're standing around. Here's Jesus who died on the cross, and we're saying, hey, how'd you get in? Oh, you should have seen me. I was awesome. My flesh was great. Man, I did good things. Oh, no. There's no room for self-glory there. All glory is to the Lamb that was slain. So Paul had an original mission to get as much done with his flesh as he could. And he had good flesh, but no flesh is good enough. <laughs> and then his mission became... To live for the Savior that lovingly, sacrificially paid for his sin. A Savior who called him to himself and enabled him for service. Now, I know many Christians who understand we're saved by grace, but they live their entire Christian life thinking somehow we've got to perform to keep God on our good side. And we've already talked about the reality that motivation matters. What we do or why we do what we do is important to God is what we do. 
And you can't possibly grow in joy for a lifetime if you don't understand the grace of God. Because you're working off a debt. You, you're never sure exactly where you stand. You just, you just can't be pleased about it in your heart. But when you understand what salvation's all about, that it's a work of God, when you understand what sanctification's all about, that it's a work of God, you can come to the realization, I want you to know something, I can go through anything in life, and I'm, I'm not going to enjoy the flames as they come up. I'm, I'm not going to enjoy all the difficult things that I go through, but I can have joy in my heart because I know there is a God that loves me, and He's never going to leave me, and He's going to go through any of this with me. And so I'll praise Him for who He is and for what he does. Paul went from wearing himself out and trying to prove something to accepting what it is that Jesus had done for him. He was no less zealous in life, but instead of working to try to gain the love of God from the paradigm of God's love, he said, God has been so good to me, I just want to serve him. I'm not doing it now to get him to like me, but because he loves me with an unconditional and unending love, I want my life to look radically different for his glory. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we get a picture that I think helps us here. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, Pastor, I feel sometimes fatigued and weak and firmed when I'm going through the valleys of life. Well, we find that an understanding of salvation brings joy. We've seen that. Restore unto me the joy of salvation. You see, joy comes from understanding that our relationship with God is as it should be. And from that joy comes strength. The enablement, the divine enablement to do what needs to be done. Now, can you see now, can, can you see why Paul was so interested in getting this message out to these people? He wanted these Christians to know that no matter what they went through in life, they could know Jesus was with them and would work in their lives to give them the strength they needed. That did not mean they were exempt from difficulties. We're all going to go through things. But it means the Lord is there with us. I'd suppose that if we were expecting an encouraging message, you would expect a message where the pastor would say, you can do it. You can do it. You can accomplish it. You can overcome it. You can do it. And I would say that the only honest, encouraging message would have to be, you can't do it. Honestly, who do you think you are? You can't do it, and I can't either. But he can. And he's not looking for us to somehow do double backflips in the power of our flesh to impress him. He's looking for us to come to him and acknowledge him for the God he is who's done it all and to say, Lord, in response to your goodness and grace in my life, I just want to live for you. I know I don't have to in the sense that if I want to maintain a standing with you, but God, because you're a God of love in response, because you first love me, I want to love you in return. And God, I want to live my life every day just the way you'd have me to for your glory. I'm just so full of joy at the salvation I received. And along with that joy is coming strength to enable me to go through the course of my life. And so I'll close with a question that I so often ask, but I pray that today the Lord has caused us to think about it with a little more depth. If you died today, do you know for a certainty you'd spend eternity in heaven with God? You see, Paul, John Bradford, they, they knew that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for those that are believers, and, and that changed things for them. Do you know? 
do you know? Now, sometimes you say, I hope so. I think so. I'm pretty sure. And those are sincere hearts that give sincere answers. But do you see how there's no joy if you're just pretty sure that when your eventual demise arrives that you will spend eternity in heaven with God? Where's the peace and joy in that? There is none. Do you know? And and I want you to know Jesus loves you and he's done everything so that we can. Everything. I, I want us to think on that today. God's not some bitter accountant the, the only ledger he sees is the one that has your name on it at the top and paid in full at the bottom. Jesus paid it. We've got to rest in that. Would you all be so kind?